you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night, by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall. And I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us, and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, like Mike said, my name is Stephen, and it's my joy to serve on staff here at City on a Hill, Brisbane. Uh, and while this morning I might be the one uh, giving this sermon, uh, a large part of this uh, was written by Zach, and so just wanted to give him <laughs> the credit for the work that he's done, uh, having spent time in this passage this week. Uh, as Mike said, he's crook uh, and unable to be here. Um, but before we dive into our text, let's bring our time together. Uh, before our good Father in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, I ask that you would please help me today to explain and proclaim your good news to us through this passage. Uh, Thank you that your word is truth uh, and that by it we are shaped and formed into the very likeness of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Uh, If this is your first Sunday with us or if you've missed the past few weeks uh, of our Rebuild series, let me uh, help bring you up to speed. Uh, Last week, we kicked off in this book of Nehemiah, which is kind of like part two 
uh, of Ezra's story. Uh, We left the book of Ezra seeing that the temple had been rebuilt, uh, but the the people of God continued to sin. Uh, They repented, but they sinned again with uh, more opposition. The people actually stopped trying to rebuild the city. Uh, This is when Nehemiah, who is still in Susa, uh, as the king's cupbearer, hears how uh, the city is still a mess, and it breaks his heart. Uh, He prays. Last week we heard he prays and he fasted for four months, uh, before then going to the king and asking the king for permission to return and help with the rebuild of the city. Uh, Because of God's providence... Over this whole situation, the king backflipped on his earlier decree to stop the building, and he allows Nehemiah to return and even gives him all the resources uh, and letters to the rulers in the area to continue with the rebuild. Uh, This is where we are up to when we hit our text this morning. Uh, And in this text, we see two things. Uh, We see who the hero of the story is, Uh, And we also see that everyone in God's community is significant. Point one, the hero of the story. Uh, In the second half of Nehemiah chapter 2, we're reminded again of the hero, and it's not Nehemiah. Picking up the narrative, Nehemiah has arrived in Jerusalem, and after three days of rest uh, and getting his bearings after a long journey... Uh, Last week, Andrew Grill said it was over 2,000 kilometers from Susa uh, to uh, Jerusalem. Uh, Nehemiah, having taken this time uh, to get his bearings, decides that at night, he and a few select men will go and inspect the wall that surrounds Jerusalem. Uh, Let's read the account together if you have your Bibles in Nehemiah chapter 2 from verses 12 to 15. This is what uh, is written. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me, but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire." Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. I'd love to invite you to keep this passage open. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, uh, we'd love for you to go and see our team out at the info desk after the service. Uh, They have some physical Bibles uh, there to give out if you don't have one. But from this passage, there's kind of a a Lords of the Rings kind of vibe to it. Uh, It's exciting. It feels dangerous and adventurous. Uh, Does anyone recognize the city up on the screen? Uh, It's pretty much the centerpiece for most of the action in the third Lord of the Rings movie, The Return of the King. I think I've heard a few people whisper, it's Minas Tirith. Uh, This city has seven walls uh, surrounding it. And in the movie, we see just how helpful these walls are in keeping the enemies out uh, and protecting the people within. 
the armies of Mordor come and encamp in the fields out in front of Minas Tirith. Uh, and they take a decent chunk of time to actually break through even the outer wall. But once they breach that outer wall, there are another six walls for them to go through in order to get to the center of the city, in order to claim victory. But once a wall is breached, the defenders of that wall either need to fall back or they are at the mercy of the attackers. God's people in Jerusalem, who Nehemiah returns to help, they don't have one intact wall, let alone seven to help their defense. They are completely vulnerable to any attack of their enemies. And so this is Nehemiah's top priority to assess and address as he returns to Jerusalem. And in doing so, we see in the passage that we've just read of his wisdom yet again. Uh, He isn't parading his plans around in front of everyone, tempting unlikely opposition. He's playing his cards close to his chest, only taking a select few with him, a few who he trusts, uh, and just the one animal to keep things quiet, to ride uh, around the city. Uh, And there's a few reasons for this secrecy. In verse 10, uh, we see that there is still opposition present in that day. Uh, In verse 10, it says, But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Nehemiah didn't want word getting back to them that he was going to look at helping the Israelites rebuild the wall. But he also had kept it from the Jews, and we see that in verse 16, where it says, And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Until he was ready, Nehemiah kept this to himself. But it was only for a time, because then in verse 17, we see that there's a big call to action. Uh, Let's read verse 17 uh, together. It says, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. Nehemiah, having gone and surveyed the wall, having seen what needs to be done to raise the defenses of their city, he gathers the people gives them a powerful call to action, and then he encourages them. Uh, In verse 18, Nehemiah tells God's people of his goodness towards them. He reminds them of God's sovereignty over the the whole situation. Uh, He tells them of the unlikely outcome when he approached King Artaxerxes, gaining permission and all the materials required to rebuild the city. It's a powerful moment of rallying the people and pointing their attention to the goodness of God, because that is who is ultimately the hero in this story. But in keeping with the general pattern of things that we've seen since we've started this series in the book of Ezra, there is immediate opposition to their newfound vigor and passion to rebuild the city. Verse 19 continues, But 
when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite's servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? The Jews are accused of going against the words of the king. And it's interesting to note Nehemiah's response. He could simply say and prove, show the letters that he has from King Artaxerxes to say that he has permission to help with the rebuild. But instead, Nehemiah appeals to the real power behind all things. He appeals to God. See what he says in verse 20. Then I, being Nehemiah, replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. He uses a similar line there to what Zerubbabel used back in Ezra chapter 4 when the people around Jerusalem offered to help. He not only calls out, not, he not only declares that God will help with the rebuild, that God would help his people to prosper, but he puts them in their place and tells them that they have no part in this. Nehemiah knows that while King Artaxerxes may have been the one to sign the paperwork to the rulers in the area, God is the one who worked behind the scenes to change the king's heart. God was the one who orchestrated all these unlikely events and scenarios to favor God's people for the purpose of God's, being, God's plan being accomplished for His own glory. This is a good word for us also. Uh, with this season that our church is in, we can be tempted to lose sight of God's sovereign control over it all. We might be tempted to think that God is no longer with us or that there is no plan or purpose for our church. Maybe we're tempted to expect too much of our eventual new lead pastor. When we read a text like this, it is easy to make Nehemiah out as a hero and to think that if only someone would step up and lead us how Nehemiah does, then all would be okay. But this is a false hope. Like the Jews of the Old Testament, we too can be tempted to put our trust in man, to trust people with charisma, those who are bold and confident, those who stand out among the crowd and give us a sense of purpose and direction. It's not saying that confident people or talented people are bad. God has created these people and gifted them in, to many institutions, including the church. But what I want to warn us of this morning is the sin of trusting something or someone else more than we trust God. We know we can trust God because His plans always come to pass. In fact, God's greatest plan, His plan for our salvation and reconciliation to Himself has been perfectly accomplished through Jesus. Jesus, inspecting the rubble of our lives, destroyed, burnt, and broken by our sin, had mercy on us. We see in Philippians 2, He became human like us and lived a complete, perfect, and holy life before the Father. Then, as the only innocent human, 
the only one without sin, he became sin for you and I, and he died on the cross in our place. Jesus took on himself the penalty for our brokenness before God. But then three days later, Jesus rose to life, proving that he is God uh, and that he has accomplished his plan of salvation, uh, his plan of saving us from our sin. Now, when we place our faith in Jesus for salvation, we are saying to God that we recognize that the walls and gates of our lives have been destroyed and that we are utterly defenseless against the attacks of the enemy. We look to Jesus because we know that only Jesus can rebuild us. Only Jesus can restore our defenses. Only by trusting in Jesus can our lives be rebuilt the way that God has always intended them to be. This is not to say that trusting in Jesus will fix all the troubles and trials that we face in this life. However, it does mean that we can have a peace and a security in Jesus amidst those things now, knowing that when Jesus returns, as it says in Revelations 21, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Verse 5 of Revelation 21 goes on to say, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write these down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Church, just as God has faithfully accomplished his plan of salvation through Christ, so he will accomplish his plans and purposes for his people and for, our, and for this church. If you're new with us today, or maybe this is the first time uh, you're hearing what God has done for you through Jesus, we're glad that you have joined us uh, and we want to welcome you. We'd also love you to know that there are many uh, in this room hoping and praying that you might trust in Jesus, that you might recognize the brokenness of this life, and that Jesus is the only one who can rebuild you as God has planned. What a blessing it is to be here today because each of us is surrounded by others who are committed to the work of seeing people's lives rebuilt by Jesus, the true hero of the story. The next portion of our text, which we didn't have read out uh, this morning, is actually chapter 3. Chapter 3 is really interesting. At first glance, it might just seem like a long list of names, a long list of people who uh, are recorded as having rebuilt a particular part of the wall. But as a Bible reading tip, when you come across long lists like this, or genealogies like what we find at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, I want to encourage you, don't just gloss over it in boredom. Don't just see the list of names and think, how boring. I encourage you to read it. The gold comes from studying uh, which names or types of people are actually being mentioned, uh, and then by investigating why they are there. This is more than just uh, a credits list like at the end of a movie. 
It's an insight into how God accomplishes His plans and purposes through His people. Let's take a look at some of the people that are mentioned in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1, opens with Eliashib, the high priest. Verse 1 says, Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. This is the high priest, the one set aside to enter into the Holy of Holies on behalf of God's people. He doesn't consider it beneath him to get involved with the rebuilding of the wall. Neither do the rest of the priests. They all jump in and they help build initially the sheep gate and they consecrate it. Uh, a fun fact about the sheep gate, this is, where, uh, this is the gate that opened out into the fields where the livestock were kept for the sacrifices in the temple. Uh, it was important for the very worship of God by His people, so it makes sense that they start the rebuilding here. They consecrate it, making it ceremonially clean for service. Uh, There are other passages in chapter 3 that, again, detail the priests helping out to rebuild the wall. It's not just the priests helping. There are those with various trades, uh, putting down their regular tools of trade, picking up whatever they need to help with the rebuilding of the wall. Uh, In verse 8, it says, Next to them, Uziel, the son of Hahiah, goldsmiths repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Now, as far as I know, most goldsmiths and perfumers are not brickies or stonemasons. And yet here they are, working hard to help build a portion of the wall. Uh, In verse 32 of chapter 3, merchants are also listed as helping with the rebuild of the wall. Another group of people helping, we've seen priests, we've seen people of various trades. We've got rulers of areas around Jerusalem or of certain parts of Jerusalem and even women, uh, which is a big deal back in those days, helping with this rebuild. Verse 12 says, Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halahesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Uh, It's amazing to see just the broad spectrum of who helped with the rebuilding of the wall. It seems that people from every part of the community are putting their hands to work. No one is standing back to see how things might pan out. No one is standing back to see whether Nehemiah will be successful or whether he might be a failure. But everyone has responded to the call to rebuild the city. Everyone is contributing to this work of rebuilding Why? Because they are God's people and this is their city. Uh, Commentator Douglas, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, Nikolashin says, although he is able to bring about whatever he wants, it's talking about God, simply by willing it into existence, most of the time God seems to achieve his ends through the cooperation of people. And although at times he uses select individuals to accomplish great things, he seems to prefer to involve as many as possible. 
God does not intend His work for only a few. It is for all. And that reality is plain and clear in the situation we see in Nehemiah chapter 2 and chapter 3. And it remains plain and clear for the church today. Once again, we are not a physical building. We are not a building, we're not building a physical temple. Uh, We're not repairing a physical wall around a city. But we, as the people of God, as His church, have been called to serve one another, to build one another up in our most holy faith, to point one another to Jesus, who is able to save and rebuild us completely in His likeness. This can be done in in so many ways. We've uh, mentioned it from the front a few times over the past few weeks about joining us on mission, joining us in the work by serving in one or more of our ministry teams that help make Sundays happen, or in a gospel community, or on a Thursday morning working with people sleeping rough, or by cooking meals for each other, praying for each other, or even rebuking and edifying one another in love. But instead of yet another recruitment drive this morning, I want us to see the glaringly obvious from this text. Everyone and everything done is significant when it is done to worship God, to build up His church, and to point us to Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul uh, is correcting the saints in that church. They had placed a lot of significance on those who had incredible public spiritual gifts, and it was becoming a competition for who could have the greatest gift. And instead of God being glorified and people being pointed to Jesus and built up in their faith, the church was being built up around the competitive nature of those with charisma and their talents. Now, this sermon isn't about spiritual gifts, so I'm not going to take us down that road this morning, but it is about seeing how Paul in 1 Corinthians is like Nehemiah in our text today, calling all hands to the work of the ministry. If you have your Bible, would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and I'm going to read from verse 12 through to 27. Paul writes, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, That would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as He chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? 
As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. We are all the body of Christ. Each part significant. Each part necessary because each of us has been brought together through God's gracious plan of redemption. His gracious plan to rebuild us in Christ's likeness as His body. I want you to turn to your neighbor this morning and tell them, you are a significant part of God's church. You are all, we are all a significant part of God's church. And so many of you are beautiful, God-glorifying examples of this. Uh, Just to mention a couple of people, uh, Bron Ford is a wonderful lady uh, in our church who intentionally gets around young moms, particularly first-time moms. Uh, Bron also diligently and frequently brings uh, our church, our staff, and its future before God in prayer. Uh, we are thankful for the mostly unseen contributions that Bron makes. Likewise, there's a young man called Jack Taylor uh, who uh, serves on a bunch of teams across both our morning and evening services. Uh, he serves as one of our podcast editors and uploaders. I don't know if you've ever seen him upload a podcast, I haven't, uh, and yet we all certainly benefit uh, from the way that he serves. People like this who quietly serve behind the scenes, doing their part to love and serve God and their brothers and sisters in Christ, are great examples to us of what it means to serve with the gifts and the time that God has given to each one of us. This is what it looks like to serve without thinking that we need to be doing something big or noticeable in order for it to be significant. As I invite the band up, The truth is, even these people are not the hero of our church. Our previous lead pastor or any lead pastor to come will not be the hero of our church. You and I will never be the hero of our church. Only Jesus can be that hero. He is the only one who can rescue us from our brokenness He is the only one who can rescue us from our rubble-like existence and rebuild us as His body. But we have been called to play our part. No matter how visible, no matter how invisible, how big or how small, we've been called to play our part for the glory of God, for the sake of building each other up in our faith in Jesus. 
church, as God's people, let us rise up and build. Let us strengthen our hands for the good work that God has prepared for us. And let us never lose sight of the truth that God is for us. So who then can be against us? Jesus has promised to build his church and therefore the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Let us continue to point one another to God's good sovereignty over all things. He is the hero. He is in charge. He is in control. And that is good news for those who love him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he is the hero, that he is the one uh, who has brought salvation. Uh, Father, help us to humble ourselves before him. Help us to see the areas in our lives where uh, we are, we have those broken walls, those burnt bricks. Help us to see our need for a savior and help us to see Christ uh, as the true King. Father, thank you that you choose to use each one of us, no matter our circumstances, no matter who we are. You have called us to be your people, to play a part in pointing others to Jesus. Help us as we seek to rebuild, as we seek to build uh, your kingdom. Would you empower us? Uh, Father, we know it's not... um, in our strength that we do this. But we rely on your Holy Spirit to lead us, to guide us, to strengthen us. Help us to be your church, pointing one another, pointing our city to you, the one true living and returning King, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.